Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Well, here we are on lockdown. How are you? It's Booker of the Perez Hilton Podcast with Chris Booker. We get it. We know you're bored. We're still doing shows. We're keeping you up to date with everything entertainment. A little bit of relief from everything that's going on in the world. You could get the show on Spotify. You could get it on your Apple Podcasts or the Podcast One app. Whatever you do, download and subscribe and get the PHP, the Perez Hilton Podcast with Chris Booker. And everything that's entertainment will be covered. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dr. Podcast. Uh, blah, 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 as usual. Uh, keep the wind in the sail of Pearl of, Pearl of Pirate Ships. I'll see you over at Twitter and Twitch and everywhere. It's at Dr. Drew and also Dr. Pinsky on Instagram. And uh, check out the streaming shows uh, at uh, TV. It is my privilege to welcome back to the show today Robert Green, the new book. Not so new. It's been out for a little while now. The Laws of Human Nature, available at Amazon, about uh, drives and motivations, which is... Uh, Something that personally I feel is woefully underemphasized in our culture today. And uh, as always, Robert, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Drew. So this book, interestingly, uh, caught my children, who are t- millennials, 29-year-old, oh. and started sort of uh, like obsessing about it and living by it. And re- Laws of human nature? Yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, wow, that's that's because they've read a couple of your other books, and they always love them, and... But wow. this one somehow caught their imagination, I guess. It's really? sort of structured in such a way. Yeah, you're it's not just, hearing this? Well, it's a, it's a long book. It's well, kind of complex. And, uh, you know, I, I'm always surprised to hear people are enjoying it in that way because it's kind of a hard read. Well, it's not necessarily the kind of book you sit down and read cover to cover. No, it, it's no. something that it, it, it needs contemplation and needs sort of context. And yeah. and you, you've broken it down into big chunks. Want to talk yeah. about that a little bit? Yeah, well, basically there are 18 aspects of human nature that I'm looking at. You know, some of them are like our tendency towards it being irrational, our tendency to be self-absorbed and narcissistic. What? The dark. <laughs> All of us have that, I'm afraid. Mm. Our, the dark side was known as the shadow. Our short-sightedness, our, our, prone, our tendency to have feelings of envy. Our grandiosity, if we have any success. Aggression, how we deal with our ideas of mortality. And each law, in some ways, it's, it's something that developed evolutionarily hundreds of thousands of years ago in circumstances that are completely different from the world that we live in. So they're not quite adaptive to to our environments, and they can turn into things that are quite negative and destructive. And so the point of the book is to make you finally aware of your own nature, of your own, the fact, so the first law of human nature is that we deny it. It's always the other person who's irrational. It's the other person who's narcissistic. The other person who feels, but not me. No, I'm a saint. I'm wonderful. <laughs> I want to break that down. I want to destroy that wall inside of you and make you aware that you have these tendencies as well. Right, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you sure, and, and dig as we go each step. Sure. So I've been thinking lately, Does, does you're, we're all friends with Ryan Holiday. Ryan yes, was I inspired am. by you. And, and I began thinking lately that that denial – and really, we're talking about cognitive dissonance, and we're talking about emotional defense strategies. So, there's, to me, there's two broad categories. One is 
the emotional defenses and how our brain is structured against painful feelings, essentially, yeah. and that creates narcissism. And then what we use in the world is our cognitive system, which is full of glitches that we don't acknowledge. Yeah. And I began thinking recently that stoicism is sort of a, a check against some of those cognitive dissonances, isn't it? Because it's, it's checking it all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so how do, you, how do you in the book address, tell people to address the denial of our cognitive glitches? Well, I, I basically batter you over the head with the idea that you're not exempt from these particular qualities. That's why I said earlier, when you were mentioning that your children were reading it, it's kind of hard, not in the sense of, of, of the length of the book, which is, you know, it is long, but in the fact that I'm making you confront your own nature and your own tendency to have these things. And the point of the book is to develop some a degree of self-distance, which I think is the key to any kind, to emotional fulfillment, to happiness, to be able to navigate a very difficult, complex social world. And what I mean by that is that you just don't simply give in to your emotions. You simply don't give in to your thoughts and ideas about yourself, but you create a little bit of distance. I, I meditate every morning, and I kind of imagine I'm looking at myself from, like, from here. I know it's always on my right side. So don't ask me why. And if I can create a little bit more distance, it's great. But the ability to look at yourself and not be caught, because we're continually caught up in our stream of consciousness, in, in our interactions with people, in our emotions. We have no distance. So the book is designed slowly, inch by inch. It's like taking a crowbar, creating <laughs> a little bit more distance so you can begin to observe yourself. This doesn't mean that your life becomes cold and rational and it's drained of all emotion. Quite the opposite, though. It's the opposite. Yeah. It gives you a feeling of lightness and can even intensify some of these positive emotions. Yeah, because you connect to them. You acknowledge them. You feel them. You see them. Yes. You, yeah. Yes. Because we, we spend a lot of time distracted and not feeling emotions. Yes, exactly. So so the first chapter, what did I write it down? It's sort of, den, is it denial? Is that Irrationality. Irrationality. Um, and that's the other thing that, people deny <laughs> is that we are irrational and essentially you know uh, we, we you know plato sort of puts, laid it out there as uh, the idea that we are charioteers being pulled by these horses and the yeah. horses are the irrational system and yeah. you're the sort of rational sort of person in the brain trying to control the horses right. I, I i've always thought thought that was too just so not not inaccurate but too just so in the sense that Really, what the charioteer is doing is looking at the horses and going, "Okay, how do I make sense of this? <laughs> what, 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 what's going on here?" Right. Without even understanding that that's what he's doing. Right. Well, I use a metaphor. I got it from ancient Greece. I don't think it's played it with somebody else of the rider and the horse. And the idea is that the rider is your rational self, right, and the horse are your emotions. And so, what you don't want to do is you don't want to emphasize one or the other. You want a perfect balance between the two so if you're the rider on the horse and you just let the horse go wherever it wants yeah you have no control over it no good. these are powerful animals mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. but if you're so rational if you're holding the if you've ever, i've ridden horses when i was younger if you hold the reins too tightly you try to control it the horse doesn't like that it, it, it can't do it can't use its its power and its energy it won't go anywhere it won't obey you but if you kind of blend with the horse because the horse is very sensitive to your thighs etc you understand your emotions if you understand that your emotions are the source of your power you know even albert einstein acknowledged that he could not have made his discoveries of theory of relativity 
without this insane sense of inspiration and persistence, had an emotional basis to it. So rationality has an emotional base to it, right? If you're stuck in negative patterns and you want to get out of them, the ability to recognize them comes from your frustration, which is a powerful emotion. And they've discovered in neuroscience, people who've had some kind of damage to their brain where they cannot connect to their emotions become wildly irrational, right? Right, right. You need the ability to understand the people in, around you and have some empathy and sense what they're feeling in order to react to them on a, reaction, on a rational level. So it's not like rationality is this insane self-control. It's an awareness of your emotions. It's an awareness of that horse so you can control it better and use the power that your emotions generate. And as we said, be careful with the rationality, not just from the standpoint of controlling emotions, also from the standpoint that it's not... Repressing them. It's repressing them, but it's also uh, rationality. You know, cognition is flawed. <laughs> you have to you have to stand outside of that too. Right, right. So it's why I always think that a lot of the AI systems that they talk about, you know, creating human intelligence. I just I don't get. I don't see how possible. I don't either. Yeah, and it, and it really it really drills down into what uh, Anthony Damasio called Descartes' yes. error. Yes, uh, that it, it really is. We're talking about the you you when you were talking about emotions, you put put on your chest. You know, it's your heart. There's yeah. there's stuff going on in our body. It's what gives us our feelings. Yeah. They come out of our body. Yeah, and I'm I, I'm in the opinion. Um, I noticed you shied away from this, but I'm going to take it, Uh-oh. which is that that there's actual processing going on in the body. It's not just the inspiration, the drive, and the frustration, all the feelings associated with trying to solve a problem. I think I think the holistic landscape of the body that the brain can access does a certain kind of processing that the linear, more you know, logical brain can't do as efficiently without it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's like is it called embodied consciousness? Yeah, it's like it's that? body consciousness or bodied reasoning, and it, and it's like what um, shoot Tesla. Tesla all of a sudden imagined the tur- the turbine. It just yeah, sort of yeah. came to him. It's like yeah. it, the, some part of him processed it all together and presented it to his rational brain. Yeah. I, I think that's a real thing. Yeah, I, I don't think we understand ourselves on a very high level. No. We don't understand to the degree no. to which we are almost sort of prisoners of our brains and the system that it has created. And we don't really understand our own emotions and where they come from, and how our thinking is completely embedded. You can't separate thinking from the body, as you say. Or, or from the interpersonal context. No. It, the, the, all. The, all of it's happening in an embodied, yeah. Yeah. interrelational world, too. Yeah, I talk about that a lot in this book, where your interactions with people are continually altering your thoughts. Yep. We are products. We're social animals. Oh, 100%. We are products of our interactions with people. They are, every day they are changing how we think. They are changing our brain chemistry, right? Constantly. So, yeah. Do you have any, I'm going to jump into a different topic really quickly, but do you have any interpretation of the present moment, that uh, insight into it uh, that the book has given you? Because it is, it is about the excesses of people believing their thinking and, uh, you know, and being swayed by the social context and the emotions of the moment and the, and the fears and all the things that are going on. Well, it's part of the reason that I wrote the book. So actually, I began the book in 2013, 2014. Wow. Right? But I was getting a lot of feedback from people, and I do consulting work. And I was getting a sense that people are slowly losing the ability to have what I was calling that distance, right? 
They were so embroiled. And a lot of it, I think, comes from technology, mm-hmm. which is sort of exacerbating some of the negative traits in human nature. So we think of ourselves as these insanely sophisticated, modern technological creatures. Yeah. But in fact, it's making us more primitive by the moment. Yes. Sort of the tribal instincts that are embedded in our nature that have a, an adaptive reason going back hundreds of thousands of years. And that comes years. into the book. Hmm? The tribal stuff comes into the book. Yes, yes. most definitely. Is that a separate... I forget, is that a separate section? I feel like I read a lot about it in the book. It's um, it's kind of embedded throughout, but I have a chapter on conformity, mm. on the conformity nature of us and how we are totally um, products of of people that we associate with and that, there, you know, there's the... the mimetic tendencies and, and, and kind of the viral tendencies in our nature. And, and then I talk about it in other chapters as well. Yeah, it's throughout the whole book. Yeah, I, I feel like I read it a lot. Yeah. Uh, although I didn't hear, I don't think I read much development of the idea of mimesis per se. Did you, do you read Rene Girard and all that stuff? I do read yeah. Rene Girard. And what, what do you think about that mimetic passion that he talks about? Is that just a weird, interesting theory or is he onto something? Well, I think he's definitely onto something. I can't say that I, I understand him completely. He's a very complex thinker. Yeah. And he re- ties it in to his very powerful religious beliefs. Yes, and, 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 and it's, all Im- it's all embedded in his deep understanding of literature and, and, and right. playwriting and things. But I, I do talk about this in several of my books, the mimetic nature of human desire. Yeah. So we go around thinking, this is part of the fact that we're ignorant of ourselves, thinking our ideas are our own, but we don't realize that we tend to want things that other people are wanting at the same time. Right. So, you know, it's it's the primate streak in us, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a lot, which is powerful. Well, we are primates, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you've ever observed children, I'm writing right now about childhood, Mm. Um, they are incredible mimetic creatures, right? Mm-hmm. They are masters at imitating, and a lot of their play revolves around role-playing and imitating adults and imitating other people. And it's why liars and con artists hate children, because they can tend to see through them very very quickly and easily. Oh, And so if it's in, I always say if it's in children, then it's something obviously deeply embedded in us. Sure, and automatic. Yeah. Right? The the thing I, I I think a lot about as it pertains to this escape, this um, mimetic passion that Rene Girard talks about is that he he his logic to me leads to the idea of scapegoating, um, uh, I, and scapegoating uh, is alive and well right now. And I I see I don't think I'm, I'm looking for people that tie together anthropology and psychology, and I I've been seeing for some time. I think I mentioned this to you last time I was in here, but it's it's become more obvious. Um, which is that childhood injury and narcissism creates a lot of unregulated aggression. Right. And for that to be channeled, scapegoating is a perfect mechanism for doing that so people don't attack each other. They get together and attack one. Right. And because envy is the other uh, sort of uh, liability of narcissism, it gratifies envy. In other words, envy to me is... You know, I, I, you've got something I want, or I, I'm jealous of, so I got to knock you down. Right, right, and that's right. scapegoating in a sense, especially if you're doing it with other people. And uh, you know, I started looking in history when, when I wrote my book on narcissism. I wanted to put a couple chapters in about scapegoating, and yeah. I said, you know, the two biggest scapegoating examples I know of are the guillotines in 1790 in France and the Aztecs, where they scapegoated somebody every morning. 
violently right. as a way of focusing their aggression. And when you look at the the uh, how they raise children in the Aztecs, they had a thing called the Codex for child rearing, sure. and it was holding your children over fires and just abusing the shit out of them. And guess what? You created these great warriors as a result of this extreme violence. But then to keep the society from not attacking each other, they would focus that aggression every morning on killing somebody right. in the name of this thing that they developed, you know, whatever. No one ever asks, you know, people just, anthropologists go, well, they just believe the sun had to come up. No, why did that happen? How did that happen? What's the evolutionary advantage of that? And I think this scapegoating phenomenon is part of that. And then the guillotines in France, and now cancel culture today yeah it's all scape it's all that primitive scapegoating mechanism and i i knew it was coming i knew it i didn't know what form it would take i just knew it would happen well i mean if it is something that's deeply embedded in human nature which i agree with you and it is it's part of our projecting outward our own demons and our own darks yep. our own shadow yep just look at the structure of social media so to scapegoat somebody literally to to find them and hurt them and put them in a guillotine is a very visceral experience you're watching the king have his head cut off. And, you know, we, we've become more, we can't really um, tolerate such strong things these days. Yeah. But on the internet, yeah. where nobody sees you, where you're completely anonymous, you can, you can give vent to all of those dark sides of your impulses. Nobody will know that you're actually a very timid little guy in a room. You're like a keyboard warrior, whatever they call it, right? But that scapegoat, this is what I say, the, t- the primitive and the most sophisticated kind of kind of, kind of meet at a certain point. Mm. So now, you know, on, on in social media, you can give vent to all of that scapegoating and never pay a price. Right. Nobody ever sees you. You don't have to actually witness the people that you're canceling, the pain that you're causing, because these are human beings with their own lives who can be completely wrecked. Well, and, you, and you're so alienated from it, you don't even see it. Well, so not only do they not see it, they they feel a moral superiority and justification in doing it almost a religious you know like i'm punishing a sinner this is what you're right. supposed to do i'm right in doing this right weird what does the yeah. book tell you about that what is what does book? The, your book does it solve that in some way i don't remember a solution to that problem well i'm trying to say you're not a saint i'm really it's been the point of my books going back to my first book in 1998 come to terms with your animal nature finally okay Stop idealizing yourself. Stop thinking that you are better than others, that you're morally superior, that you're more rational, that you're more in control of yourself, because you're deluding yourself. And I've been beating people over the head over it for 20-some years with my various books. And so the idea is you have to become aware of the fact that you are not as great as you think you are. And I had that problem as I was writing the book. Not problem, but that, that process so I'm writing a chapter, the second chapter, on self-absorption and narcissism. And I'm going deep into the subject, not as deep as you did in your book, I'm sure, but I'm going into the, reading a lot about it, and I'm going, wow, Robert, you're actually quite narcissistic. You have all kinds of signs of narcissism, right? You're sort of, you are very much self-obsessed and self-absorbed. And it was a painful thought. It didn't hit me at one day suddenly. It was a process, and I'm suddenly becoming aware that you're not as as noble and altruistic and, and disinterested as you think, right? And it was painful, but it was very important. And now, with that little twinge of self-awareness, when those moments come where I realize I am being quite self-absorbed in my personal relationships with my wife, my mother, etc., I have that little bit of distance, and I can say, all right, you're giving in to that self-absorption that's embedded in our nature, 
let's have some distance from it and let's try and alter that pattern. The, the really dangerous pattern in narcissism is the tendency to, as you say, project out and to blame everything out here for whatever's going on with me. Right. And and that's a hard people hard for people to get distance from that. They just they're just rigidly resistant to it. And and you know when I see it uh, coming to a head is when it you know they create a mess in their life and it breaks through, and then all of a sudden there's like a a rush of reality which is overwhelming sometimes. And it still doesn't still doesn't it it doesn't change necessarily them. change them. That's true. They have to do a lot of work to change. And I mean, Brian they won't and I it. worked together uh, at a company called American Apparel. I was on the board of directors. He was the head of marketing. And the CEO, because I talk in the book about narcissistic leaders. Mm-hmm. And it's a strange phenomenon in history how we humans are very much attracted to narcissistic leaders. Mm-hmm. We see it in business. We see it certainly in politics, right? Yep. And so this man who ran the company, Dove Charney, who actually was kind of a friend of mine, or he befriended me, was incredibly narcissistic. But he had no self-awareness at all. So whenever any problem arose and the company was slowly going down the toilet, you know, year by year by year, it was always, uh, he was scapegoating continually. It was always other people. He could never look at himself and say, I am the source for the chaos that I'm creating. And finally, the company tanked. It went bankrupt. He lost control of his life's work. And he still was in denial. He still is trying to have lawsuits and say, we fired him for wrong reasons. Everything he did was correct. So these are defenses that are built in early childhood, right, for protecting people from having that kind of painful self-awareness. A and feeling they, small. Hmm? A feeling small a feeling or shameful. small and yeah. vulnerable. Yeah. And they're built up over years. There are walls that are erected. And those walls aren't going to come down easily, even with a blast of reality like yeah. losing your company. Yep, that's absolutely true. And, and I guess we all kind of admire that. Whoa, look how he still fights. <laughs> yeah. if you, it's like, it's uh, somebody, I think Corolla said this, he goes, well, yeah, guns are a problem uh, if they're pointed at you. <laughs> but if you're using them to defend yourself, you're kind of glad you got them. Right. And so that maybe that's why we're attracted to that stuff. But it, did he do that thing where um, he would anoint people like you in his in his world like you're my man only you can do this you're the best at this you know did he do that kind of stuff to sort of grooming yeah he did grooming he was yeah. definitely seducing me it, and he's really interesting the way they do that they're always like oh only you, you are the, only you could be the one for well, me in this it's, job. it's a misunderstanding people have of narcissism and people who are toxically narcissistic they do have a degree of a kind of pathological empathy they're able to see into you and to see your vulner mostly focused on your vulnerabilities and your weaknesses. Yes. And they've developed um, a degree of charm and yes. charisma. Oh, sure. Because they learn in childhood that that they can act out, they can be dramatic because narcissists can be incredibly dramatic and they can have this level of confidence and it can be very appealing to other people, right? So he was definitely he, he wanted to create a board that would protect him, that would be incredibly loyal so that he could do whatever the hell he wanted to. So, yeah, I was being groomed from early on. He was. I wrote a book, The 48 Laws of Power, which he called his Bible. He actually called me Jesus. Oh, there you go. That's you the know? stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. 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 You're, you're, they anoint yeah. their, their inner circles. But the yeah. irony is, as I began to see him crumble, I started yeah. trying to criticize him. I tried to say, look, Dove, you need to try to alter your ways, right? Yeah. You know, you're in a business where tastes are changing by the minute. You can't hold on to this one style. Yeah. You also have to, you know, manage better and have people around you that can take off some of the 
etc., etc. He would not listen to me, even though I was Jesus, even though I was the Lord. When it came to the point where I was starting to criticize him, I I turned into the villain. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And, uh, you know, you've heard me talk about this many times. People need to think about therapy before it's later, before they start having really significant symptomatology. And it is stigma that gets in the way of people taking care of their brain the way they would take care of any other organ. And now with BetterHelp, it is so much easier. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, even live chat sessions with your therapist. You don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, and you certainly don't have to suffer the indignity of running to somebody in the waiting room, which I think people are very frightened about, and there's none of that. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. You can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours, and by the way, all that waiting room stuff is just more stigma, guys, So, but but okay, so use BetterHelp. Give it a try. See why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. And for the Dr. Drew Show listeners, you can get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is Better, H-E-L-P dot com slash D-R-E-W. Bowl and Branch, we love Bowl and Branch and all their products. Buttery, soft, lightweight, organic, cotton, satin weave for sheets. You, I'm Listen, I, this is such a great gift too, but I, if somebody gave me Bowl and Branch, they are now my best friend. It's not too hot, not too cold. Bowl and Branch focuses on quality over quantity. It's made to a higher standard, 100% organic cotton, ethical production, nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit. With Bowl and Branch, they offer 17-inch deep-fitted sheets. That's right. And labeled sides to help you make your bed beautifully every time. Best of all, Bowl and Branch gives you a fair price, plus a 30-day risk-free trial with free shipping and returns. Ugh. Bowling Branch are the best. I sleep on them every night. We have the just we have sort of a creamy colored one. Uh, listen, I bought them as gift, and they are comfortable, sustainable, quality at a fair price. That's right. And for those of you out there that want some Bowl and Branch, get fifteen percent off your first set of sheets when you use promo code Drew at checkout. That is bowlandbranch.com promo code Drew. You can get 15% off your sheets when you use promo code DREW at checkout. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code DREW. So here's an interesting, let me give you an interesting insight into narcissists yeah. as somebody who's dealt with them my whole career and my whole life, really, because uh, my parents were fairly narcissistic and my, my dad particularly. Yeah, you too, and and uh, all a lot of us. It's been a well. Let's be fair. There's been this. There's been a massive uh, sort of shift towards narcissism as a general personality oh, style in this Amer- in this country, particularly. And I saw it in the '80s. I was uh, working in a psychiatric hospital in the early '80s when I first got there. There were you know they'd fill out this one page where you put the the personality diagnosis. And when I first got there, there was all it was all over the place, all kinds of different personalities. And by the late '80s, early '90s, it was all cluster B: narcissist, sociopath, borderline, never anything else ever. Wow. And I thought, ooh, something's happening. This is weird. And first, I thought it was sort of they were overdiagnosing or over. I don't know. There was a fad or something. But oh no, 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 it was a thing. Uh, and so, when you grow up with a narcissist, you are I, I, children pick up on everything, right? Sure. And so I was acutely aware of my dad's particularly very um, painful inner core that I had to protect. So I, I, You had to protect him. 
I had to protect oh, him from yeah. Oh yeah. And so and so you end up co-signing all the narcissistic defense as a participant in protecting that individual because you sense that deep wound, that deep narcissistic injury, we call that, and you want to protect them from it when they're your parent. The problem is the narcissistic leader somehow senses that and then uses that to keep you engaged with them. I had one, and I, I'm, I'm really good with narcissistic leaders because of my dad. I'm aware of what is happening, right. even though I can't really stop what I do. I still gratify them and protect them and all that stuff. Sure. Except what happens is, Eventually, you'll reach a point. This is I'm, I'm going down this story so people can understand what they do if, to do if they have narcissistic bosses, which is common. You will there will be a point where they just don't listen to your needs. They there's a divergence right. in your priorities and what you right. need. I, I was in one situation where I complained, complained, complained for years to a to a superior that I admired greatly, and finally I thought, oh, this I have to I have to blow through the narcissistic defense. I have to hire an attorney. I have really? to raise holy fucking hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the wound emerged. I'm wounded. You were my man. I'm so wounded. Yeah, yeah. And and and, and then of course, then I come in and rescue him a little bit. <laughs> like yeah, I can't tolerate that. Can't I can't help. tolerate it's a pattern that was developed. That's yeah, right. But but the wound there comes the wound, and I was able then to be heard and make some change. Even though I was able to sort of glue everything back together again, and we off we went in our original strategy with right. each other, uh, which was okay with me. I understood what was going on. I just had to. I, I, we had a massive problem, uh, and it just I couldn't get heard, and so I had to. You have to. You have to literally dismantle the structure that you've built with the individual, and it's very confusing to them. Yeah, particularly if you grew up with narcissistic parents. What's well, if what's well, if you haven't had therapy, it's impossible to do. Yeah. I had lots, lots of therapy, and, and that's why it came clear to me. I was like, holy shit. And you end up, when you have a narcissistic parent, almost being attracted to narcissists oh, and drawing them into your life. A hundred percent. You're trying to kind of repair the original well, wound. You're, people, there are psychologists that would say that explicitly. I think it's something more deeply evolutionary, sure. biological, in the sense that it's what Freud called traumatic reenactments, or Freud called repetition compulsion, sure. we, we now today call traumatic reenactment. Right. So in other words, it was so traumatic to me early, under age five, to sense that wound, magically I'm attracted to that same stuff over and over. So if you're in relationships where you keep going back to that kind of person again, there's a reason for it. It's a traumatic reenactment. And that internal landscape is really hard to change and it's takes a very, lot of emotionally focused therapy to, to really change I it. I think it's, I'm wondering if there's any connection here. Do you know, is the psychologist Ronald Fairburn? Fairbairn is, Fairburn. is one of the original theorists about this stuff. But, Ob- but object. The object relations theory, yeah, yeah but there, but they, but that evolved even from there. I went to Kohut and Kernberg yeah, Kohut, and all right. these guys, but yeah. but it's all theories of narcissism. But really, to try to understand these things in a theoretical framework is a little bit slippery because it doesn't fit theoretical frames that well. It's an emotional, bodily based thing, Definitely. and it really is about. I, I think the more fruitful area is what's called intersubjective neurobiology. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting stuff. Where people learn to regulate each other. I mean, this is your book on children. Yeah. Check out Alan Shore and, and Stephen Porges. i write this down. We did a couple. Maybe you can tell them the pods I did with them. You can hear them talking about their theories. And I have found that to be fundamental to all this stuff. Well, the, the one thing in Fairburn that I, I was interested in was the concept of moral defense. <clears throat> And the idea is that when you have a when you're a child and your parent is not giving you the attention that you want, you feel kind of abandoned. Oh yeah. Your 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 reaction is not to get angry at them, but to think something is wrong with you. Correct. But but understand that's a 
natural and universal experience of childhood that is part of primary narcissism, which is everything in the world is because of me. Right. (laughs) Therefore, I automatically blame, shame, feel bad for whatever's happening. Because you don't want to believe that your parents are weak and vulnerable and flawed because that's an intolerable sensation because you're dependent on them for your survival. Correct. I'm wondering, though, as as I'm listening to you, whether that's something that happens as we get older, dealing with a narcissistic leader where you're embroiled in this, where we're still having that bit of a moral defense, where we don't want to believe that they're flawed because we put, you know, it's the same thing kind of with like Trump and the phenomenon of his followers. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to believe that this person is flawed or weak because we've invested in them almost like they're a parent figure. I'm just speculating. No, no, no. I, I think yes. But but it as I ruminate about it, it feels more emotional than something sort of rash that you can describe rationally like yeah, that. Yeah, of course. Uh, and uh, it, it, it so you're in a traumatic reenactment, which is why you're there already. Right. And then you don't want you. And, and by the way, most people that are in these traumatic reenactments aren't really aware why they're there, oh, or no, may not have no, any no, conscious no. memory oh, of the no. early, you know, vulnerability of the parent. All yeah. this stuff's not apparent to them. Yeah, yeah. So their thing is just. Uh, no, this guy's going to protect me. It's sort yeah. of more—it's a more superficial kind of a thing, yeah. but it's the same phenomenon. You know, the grandiose leader is going to protect me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have a chapter in the in the human nature about character, and the idea is that um, there's an a core to us that is partially genetic. Our brains are wired in a certain particular way. It also comes from our early childhood, from our attachment patterns, etc. Mm-hmm. You must it, be getting deep into that stuff now with the childhood yeah, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, my book is a little bit different. I can describe that later. I'm writing a book on the sublime. Oh, wow. And I'm trying to go into how children's brains are actually wired differently than adult brains. Which is true. And how actually we don't have any consciousness of how our experience of life when we were three, four, or five, we don't even remember usually. Right. But it was a time of incredibly intense experiences. Yes. And I connect the sublime to the intensity of our, of our emotions, etc. But we have no awareness of that because the adult mind is, is wired completely differently. So I'm really going kind of deep into that. Books like The Philosophical Baby. I don't know if you ever read that. No. Interesting. Sounds book. fantastic. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but, but let me go back to you. So the character thing yeah. again. I, uh, Peter... Fonagy has a really interesting way of, of framing attachment and constitutional genetic qualities, uh-huh. right? That's what we're talking about. He's, he said essentially between, he, said, he formulated it like this, which I thought was pretty insightful. He said between the genes and the environment is attachment. Attachment is an totally. interesting sort of adaptive That's buffering. interesting. I never thought of it. Forming, it's an interesting, right? right. You, you could have all kinds of proclivities constitutionally, but if the attachment is secure, all those proclivities can be managed, right? right? right, right. You can be a perfect genetic specimen. You have an insecure attachment, you're yeah. fucked. <laughs> so right. it's really interesting. So, so anyway, um, yeah. yeah, so what I was getting at in the character idea is that because you're not aware of this, this, this really hardcore part of yourself, you're trapped in these repetition patterns, these compulsive patterns mm-hmm. that you talked about with mm-hmm. Freud, and you're continually repeating the same things over and over and over again. You're drawing to you certain negative situations. I would, I would argue, you're attracted to. You're attracted, which is something to. no one ever talks about. Where do attractions come from? Why would you be attracted to that? Well, there's a reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so you have these patterns in your life, right? And Heraclitus wrote, "Character is fate." 
And so your character determines your fate in life. And the only hope is to be aware of this. As I talk about the, the, the subject of the book is self-awareness. is to be aware of these patterns and to be aware of this character, you know, and what Reich called character armor. It's kind of protecting you from the world. And that with that, you can begin... To, you can't alter this character, I don't think. You know, I don't think even later in life with the with therapy, you can't alter it, but you can channel it in different directions. You can make it more productive. Yeah, you can, you, can, you can integrate it. Yes. You can make it more integrated. Yeah. I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, having, again, years of therapy and stuff like that, I've noticed that I'm, I'm not different. Just certain things don't bother me or certain things are regulated or certain yeah. things are improved in terms of decision-making or ability to be free of certain encumbrances like the right. repetition compulsion and stuff. Yeah, right. but the character itself... It is it is deeply embedded in our genetic makeup and then our experience and context of growing up. Yeah, and it's other people and people don't. I don't think emphasize that enough. I mean, we are embedded from the moment we are born in a social context. The self emerges in an interpersonal context. That's where it. That's what generates the self and the other. Yeah. And then the whole regulatory landscape of feelings is worked out in intersubjective exchange that's right yeah do you i don't remember that come up too much in the book did that come up towards the intersubjectivity? end intersubjectivity yeah i didn't is that towards oh, the end it's 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 completely in the book i can't think of which particular chapter i have a chapter on on persuasion and influence oh yeah i want to talk on, about that on, on what i call dealing with your self-opinion yeah 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 and talk about that so the idea is that um you don't realize because you're going around in the world and you're seeing people react to you, but you don't understand that you're causing their reaction, right? Yeah. So your attitude towards people determines how they react to you, which determines how you react to them. So your intersubjective yes. experiences are altering your own opinion. Yes. And you're often it's a feedback conf- loop. Feedback. You're often confirming what you want to believe in the first place. Mm. And some of the most interesting studies were things like I can't remember the word, the Pygmalion complex or whatever it's called. Where teachers in a classroom, if they they've done studies, if they simply think that their students are going to college and are worthwhile and are you know smart. are smart, yeah, I've they don't have that. to say it. They yeah. never say a word. It alters how the students react. Yep. Right. Yep. So if thoughts that are not even expressed have an influence on people, imagine what the power is of thoughts that are expressed, right? Yes, yes. So we're completely embedded in other people in ways that go even beyond language. Oh, for sure. No, that's probably, who even knows? how we, We're not even aware of how powerful that is. We can't really, yeah. really see it. But persuasion is an interesting thing. I feel like in, in a world with lots of irrationality, persuasion pers- you know, holds sway. And yeah. we have to kind of be aware of where it's operating and, and, and really understand how to use it on other people in responsible ways. Right, right. Right? I mean, persuasion is always acknowledging our irrational nature and sort of going with it. Back to, uh, Gary, do you have any questions, Robert, by the way? I'm getting deep in. I'm going to kind of feel you thinking over there. I'm trying to keep off a little overwhelmed. Okay, all right, okay. Uh, All right, so, so, uh, ah, damn it. I was going to go. So people, every hour... I have a block left over from COVID. Gary hears this every hour. You have a what? I have a, every, once an hour COVID has done something to my brain. You had it? We're, oh, yeah. I had bad COVID. 
Oh, and, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, I still ring in my ear, and I, I learned languages as a way of getting over the fog and stuff. Ah, it was very languages? interesting. Uh, a Greek, and then I went back to my French and really ah, perfected wow. it, and my, my fog lifted. Oui, très bien, oui, mais je parle beaucoup maintenant. Je m'en très bien. Oui, tu parles très bien. Oui, je veux remercier. Greek is a little weak right now. But well, yeah, I, I, Greek I have to go back to, because I, I was actually doing okay, and then just whew, gone when I went and focused on French wow, again. Wow, wow. Um, But uh, it once an hour, a block, whatever I was going to say, it just, I mean, something literally I'm about to say something, it just will go. Now, aging does that too. I have that problem. But, but, I didn't have COVID. But, but, but when it goes, with, with aging, it goes away, it doesn't come back. Yeah. With COVID, it comes back in about 120 seconds. Oh, really? It, it's very weird. And it's once an hour. And oh. uh, Gary's heard me say this before. Okay. So let me see if I can get it back. Uh, persuasion. Yep, here it is. So motivational states. Uh, that That's one of the, the things that... Um, You know, having worked in the field of addiction of broken motivations, right? The motivations are, in some sense, our deepest biology, right? I mean, it's survival, it's reproduction, it's nutrition. I mean, that, that's essentially it. Right, right. <laughs> and then anger and aggression, other things get, you know, defense and things get wound in there. But, but I, I've had the privilege uh, and the frustration of dealing with brains whose motivational systems are broken. So I get to, I get to see how the oh, brain responds when the one, when survival is no longer the motivational priority and using a drug is the motivational priority. And because motivations are not conscious, right? They're just sort of tones. Right. colors yeah. uh the individual is really not aware that they're in that state if they have cravings they're aware of it but cravings to me are a good thing I, with the field of addiction has gotten obsessed with cravings cravings are a good thing really? it lets you know your disease is active and well I and see. you need to do something i see the motivational disturbance starts affecting your thinking your judgment uh. your feeling states everything else starts to serve the broken motivation i see and so they will often come up with these ideas that seem perfectly rational that they don't okay. understand are pushing, moving them towards using. Of course, of course. Because yeah, that, that movement is there. The motivation is there. Yeah. Uh, even though they don't feel it. They're not aware of it. Uh, and so it was really interesting. It's interesting to watch you know, broken, the broken, that broken system affecting all the other higher, so-called higher functions, right? Um, Do you think that we all have that problem as well? We all are under the sway of it. We all need to pay attention to it. I can see that it. even in myself to some degree. Right. And, and just think in terms of you're hungry or you're in pain. Uh, your motivational system is going to have a set of priorities that's going to affect your thinking and your behavior. Exactly. It just is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can fight it and you can be aware of it, but it's going to, it's going to win every right, time. Right, right, uh, right, right. And so there are many, many you know, motivations around reproduction and... Uh, 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 probably power or, or sort of uh, defense, defense, self defense is probably in there, and really, it's all survival stuff, right? Yeah. Um, is coloring things? How, how do you understand those things? Well, I, I don't. I didn't quite go into that subject, which is very, which is fascinating. But what I'm trying to talk about is how do you deal with people like that? Because maybe people like like what who have these kind of motivational breakdowns, oh. etc., mm. or people who are locked in a certain way of thinking that is destructive and you maybe you you're in a relationship with them they're your parent they're your boss how do you deal with it and how do you try to even think of changing them and i try to make the idea that everybody has a self-opinion that's what the chapter is titled they have an idea about themselves the idea is 
I'm a rational person. I'm actually very moral. I have ideals. I get along with people. I don't know, whatever, or I'm very independent and I'm a maverick. These are embedded in them. And if you come and you try and break that opinion, you create massive a reaction, an right. ab reaction. Yeah, the people, we, we live in this weird world. I just want to just point out that where, unfortunately, Dr. Phil, who's doing good television, has created this sense you're supposed to attack defenses. Defenses, man, it's like it's like the Starship Enterprise. Yeah. Then the force shields go up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you have no chance yeah, of, right. of, of striking right, anything. Right. So this idea of, yeah, why don't you, why don't you call them out? Why don't you... No, no, it's no, like no. that is a that's and that's anathema. and that is per- pervasive in our culture. Yeah, people are continually attacking, attacking, attacking. Yeah. and um, so I was very interested in in I don't know if you are as well, but Milton Erickson uh, is that Ericksonian psychology? Is this no, no? That's no, Eric Erickson. Yeah, no, I don't know. Erickson, Erickson. was the founder of hypnotherapy. Oh. And um, and kind of a strategic approach to therapy. I must read. Uh, oh, I, I'm, I absolutely adore oh. Milton Erickson. He's he's a weirdo, but he's amazing. Okay, and his story I talk about in Laws of Human Nature, where he was he had polio at the age of nineteen, and could only only he had the only muscles he had were his eyeballs. Oh my! And for like a year, or I don't know how long, he was in this state, oh. and he turned himself into the most acute observer of nonverbal behavior has ever existed on this planet. Wow. He could see, he could judge who you were by just the gestures in your hands, just by the look in your eye, just the quality of your skin, because that was how he, how he had to, you know, trapped a man with a very active mind, yeah. is trapped in his body, oh. can't do anything. All he could do was observe people. Anyway, Eric's... And he's a child, too, so it's all, all this intensity, as you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Erickson thought that you have to enter other people's worlds if you want to try and change them. Mm-hmm. You have to kind of become who they are to some degree. You can't yeah. go too deep into yeah, that. Yeah. But you have to understand how they're thinking. That's right. And once you understand how they're thinking, you can kind of slowly channel them in other directions. So he would use people's manias and phobies as a way to alter their behavior. Mm. And it required a, a lot of it was kind of reverse psychology, etc., but I found that very powerful. But the idea is you have to first understand that people have a self-opinion and your job is to kind of boost it a little bit and validate it to some degree so their defenses can come down instead of going up. So that's sort of my take on that. I don't know if that oh, oh, jives uh, uh, well, motivational. Oh, 100%. Nutrafol, oh yes, 80 million men and women in the U.S. experience thinning hair. That's right, it's not openly talked about, and there's something you can do about this. Yep, with Nutrafol, and listen, and millions of Americans are experiencing this, it's nothing to be ashamed of, it's very, very common for a variety of reasons. Nutrafol is formulated with potent botanicals that help your hair grow as strong as you are. Nutrafol is a physician-formulated, 100% drug-free, natural, clinically effective botanicals for better hair growth. And on top of thicker, stronger hair, no lasers, no chemicals, Nutrafol's ingredients may also help uh, get better sleep, stress response, skin nails also, and sometimes improve libido. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com. Use the promo code DREW to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is the best offer available anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers and for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. 
N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Drew, for hair as strong as you are. Don't wait. Don't start addressing thinning hair. Do it now. Nutrafol can be used with other hair growth therapies as well or as a health-promoting alternative. Again, it's for hair as strong as you are. Nutrafol.com slash Drew. Well, AMCN gives you coverage for the full cost of an emergency medical flight. That may not be covered. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with substantial deductibles and co-pays. Protect your family and your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership is as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home. That is just pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen, and AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you will get up to a $50 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit Air Medcare Network. That is airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use the offer code Drew. Every 60 seconds, not one, but two children are trafficked. And every 30 seconds, one is forced into exploitation for the purpose of heinous acts. Human trafficking is happening in your own backyard. It is happening to your neighbors. Many whom we see every day in our own communities hidden in plain sight. You know, there's kids out there that are being bought and sold 20 times a day. We must bring the child back to the center of our care and concern. Today, we launch Goya Cares. Goya Cares is committed to supporting victims and overcomers of trafficking and abuse to recover, restore, reconnect, and to shine the light that will block traffic. This is where we become the light. God saved me. I believe that I was called to this. Perhaps he's calling you to block traffic. Join Goya Cares and visit blocktraffic.org. Uh, and and so I have to I have to have be, had to have become very skilled at getting around all the defenses and sort wow. of getting wow. in there, um, and and because of all that, you know, I always think when I disagree with somebody or somebody has an extreme point of view or an acting out or something, I say, why, why are they doing that? What is going on? I, I don't think I don't react to the surface thing. I like what? Why do they believe that? What's right. going on there? And um, I noticed my son who got a, just got a psychology degree. Started using interesting language that I could I could see right away what he was doing. I noticed all all, all of a sudden he started saying, "Have you ever considered?" <laughs> I thought, "Oh, he's learned." And yeah. and the word what I use is, "I'm wondering." I'm wondering. It's oh, like oh. it was called therapeutic wonderment, and, uh-huh. and so I I know exactly what's going on. And I just go, I "Wonder if you ever thought about you know just uh, <laughs> just something that goes right at some feeling state that I know is present in the room that they're not aware of." Yeah, and just sort of calling up. I'm wondering how that. How that must have made you feel? I'm wondering what that was, and yet I can see it clear as day. I know exactly what it is. Uh-huh. And and my son uses a lot of how have you ever thought about? Have you ever considered? Wow. It's, it's always going around. <laughs> you have uh-huh. to go around. And people, even if they know what you're doing, they immediately respond to it. Of course, it's of really course. interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering. It's just such a therapeutic wonderment. It's just a powerful, powerful instrument. Well, I've yeah. never heard it put that way, but that's really interesting. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. I, for some reason, I'm even having an emotional reaction thinking about it because I probably was the, the object of that in therapy a lot. 
Like, uh-huh. you know, I'm wondering how that felt, or I'm wondering well, what you're you feeling. Do you use that outside of the therapeutic context? Oh, sure. Yeah, oh, sure. All, all the time, because yeah. it's it's how people work, and I don't want to I don't want to trigger aggression or, or no. you not get anywhere. I mean, I may, you know, if I'm discussing a scientific problem, it's a very different context. Sure, and, sure, and, sure. And, in a, and in a sense, those of us that are trained as scientists, are the part that the training is to get our cognitive distortions out of the discussion yeah. and, and stay with the math, stay with the logic, stay with these things, and to call out people where they maybe are, are drifting into problems with assumptions or problems with data analysis and stuff. And we welcome that. that the, that's the check and balance that keeps us all in the logical frame, hopefully moving towards the truth. But in terms of interpersonal, social stuff, yeah. no, no, no. You have to be very careful not to trigger defense. But we all have a we all have a blind spot, which is even the most rational, oh, person, even the therapists, yes, think that they're the ones that are kind of see the situation with clarity. But you have to understand that a part of that irrationality is in you, right? And you have to access that in dealing with people like that. I call that, you know, there's a thing in the Bible, suffer fools gladly. Yes. It's very, I have a hard time with that because there's so many foolish people. In yeah. But you have to realize that you have a foolish side to your own personality. Yeah. You, you have short-sightedness. You have irrationality. So you need to access some of that in dealing with people and not have this insane kind of moral superiority, which will foreclose any kind of... Yeah, attempted therapy. It's really interesting. I, I had a patient. Uh, it's actually on celebrity rehab, and, and I and I, she's extra smart, and I I could sense it. And and when you and when you when you point something out real about another person, even if it's a a little bit you know like critical, it has some weaknesses to it. That they they really appreciate it. So I, I said to her, I said, I I see how smart you are. You do not suffer fools gladly. Yeah, yeah, I see it, <laughs> and yeah. as such, I know you're going to call me out on stuff when I have my blind spots emerge and stuff, and, right. and, I, and I welcome it. Bring okay. it, bring it into the room. It's That's great. Fine. That's great. But but you're what you're talking about is, and this is really the the world of therapy now, is when you're in an intersubjective world where somebody's having a deep experience and the other person is reflecting it and responding to it and feeling oh, it, it changes everything. But you have to sort out what's yours and what's theirs. Yeah. And that's called a boundary. You can't get too enmeshed. Boundary, right? You have to right. have a boundary because if you're overtaken by their feelings, yeah. well, how does that help anybody? Right, right Now I'm right. just overtaken by your grief. I'm overtaken by your anger. Whatever it is, you have, to go, you have to look inside and understand your own emotional landscape enough to go, well, that's not something I normally feel. Right, right, I bet right. that's coming from her or him right, or whatever. Right, right, right. And yeah. sort those things out. And and that's that's a great practice for people uh, in terms of uh, for me it was important as a patient and it was also important in, in working with people as being yeah. able to really uh, experience them on a deep level without and still being a, have resources available to help them hold and contain and regulate emotions that are in the room, which yeah. is you know yeah we both but your point is when there's stuff going back and forth between people we're both participating yeah. 100% yeah, 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 all yeah. the time yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. and impossible to become totally aware of to the extent to which that is happening it's happening yeah. ways we are not aware of yeah so you know i talk a lot about empathy in the book and people think that that just means that you enter so deeply into the other world that you almost become the other person yeah. but if you can you can create a degree of distance from those from that emo- empathy you can while you're understanding their world, you have a bit of distance to yep. understand that you're not feeling what they're feeling, but you can sense it, you can understand it, you can use your mirror neurons, you can enter it, but you create a bit of boundaries, as you yeah. put it. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to be overtaken by it. empathy doesn't mean that you completely enter the other person. No. You can always 
use it in a very rational way. That's right. And guess what? If you get good at that, you'll have the same posture towards yourself. Oh, completely. And so you learn to empathize and experience parts of yourself without being overtaken by yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. So. Robert, I could talk to you all day, literally. We could do 10 shows, but uh, our time is up here. <laughs> same, same here. It's always great to talk to you. Congratulations yeah. on the book. It's yeah. deeply inspiring. I, I I jumped around a bit in it, which is why I wasn't you know, was super clear on, on because I, I found it something that had something that would attract me every day. And so I would just jump around and oh, find it great. and read it. I um, it. But I, because of that, I want to go back and really try to finish it and get all the The last third, I think I didn't get to very well. Okay. Uh, what am I going to find there? Well, you're going to find the last chapter, which is about how to deal with your mortality, which is a very important thing because I had to deal with that um, three years ago where I had a stroke and nearly died. And so I'm, I'm, your relationship to your mortality kind of defines you in a way. And I want you to turn around your normal fear and denial and repression into something actually life-affirming. So life and death are inextricably bound. You can't separate the two. You have a feeling of death just as you have a feeling of life. You feel the blood in your... But you also have a little sense of death in you the moments before you fall asleep. The own memory of your birth, which is kind of a similar to a death ex, your death experience. And these are incredibly liberating emotions. If you, I say you turn around and you confront your death. And it's, it's so that you will find in the last chapter. I talk about aggression... I want to go. I'm going to do the mortality thing. I'm going. I'm going to consult it today. Uh, okay, because so. it's the it's the subject of my next book on the sublime. Oh. Also, I I had a seventh book that came out, but after Laws of Human Nature. Are you familiar with Ryan's Daily Stoic? Sure. I came out with a book called The Daily Laws. About oh, three months ago. I did see that also, and yeah. my and my kids got involved in that one as well. Oh, okay. That, and, and I got involved with it as well. But nice. I but but the 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 laws of human nature for me was. It's sort of a masterpiece. Oh, thank you, <laughs> so, God, thank you. So yeah, because that, well, you, 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 I think you even said it in the beginning that the book that you were sort of putting together all the other stuff into the all point. my experiences yeah. with toxic people, all yeah. my own sh- demons that I've dealt with, and all my consulting work. It all gets funneled into this one book. Yeah, there it is. Well, thank you, Robert. Uh, is there a website or anything you want to send people to? Uh, at Robert Green Official dot com. At Robert Green Official dot com. And e- Green with an E. Yes, it is. Yeah. And uh, get the get the laws of human nature. Get the daily. What's called the daily laws. Daily, daily laws. laws. Both. Uh, again, my kids found that one too, and we're oh. we're into it. So uh, it's you're a millennial. I think you might find something useful. In so oh. thank you so much, Robert. And we'll thank see you all, so much. Exactly. See you all next oh, time. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com.